Our next speaker is another old friend, Connie Benson, who in a previous life was working at Rush, but now is in, in San Diego as professor of medicine and has been many times has spoken at this meeting and welcome back, Connie. Well, it's wonderful be, to be back in Chicago again. I worked here for 18 years and then moved successively further west. So uh, these are my financial disclosures and the learning objectives, both of which are in your syllabus. So if you'd like to review those, feel free. Okay. You seem to be having trouble this <laughs> today with these. So let's move right along into what I plan to talk about today, and I'll just make a disclaimer right at the beginning. I'm going to talk about all the things from CROI that aren't being covered by all the other speakers. So <laughs> I'm going to cover things that don't relate to antiretroviral therapy, new drugs, hepatitis C, and PrEP, and hopefully cover major presentations from CROI that address epidemiology and the treatment cascade, uh, some comments about a couple of PrEP studies in women, end organ complications of HIV and antiretroviral therapy, opportunistic infections, and a little bit about malignancies, and then hopefully some take-home messages from those studies. So, okay. First, going on to epidemiology and the treatment cascade. Uh, our pointer does not seem to, or our uh, advancer doesn't seem to be working, so I don't know if you guys want to advance slides from back there or not, but can you go to the next slide? So first study I'm going to talk about is an interesting presentation from the CDC about the lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis. And why is this important? These are data that the CDC uses periodically to compare the burden of disease across different patient populations, racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., looking at the risk of an HIV diagnosis using national health surveillance, mortality, and census data. So for the latest period, from 2009 to 2015, they estimated the overall probability of an HIV diagnosis for an individual was 1.05%, and this translates into about one in uh, 96 people having a probability of uh, an HIV diagnosis from birth. And this is, represents a decrease from the previous period around 2005, where it was 1.29%. Males at all age groups and in all risk categories had higher probability of a lifetime diagnosis of HIV than women, and the highest lifetime risk, of course, is in African-American men. Next slide, please. These are, uh, present, these are graphic depictions of these data and show you lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis over on the left-hand side to you with the top line being men and the bottom line being women. Thank you. And the bar graphs here show you the lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis. A, high, a large bar means a low risk and a small bar a high risk. And over here in blue, although you can't see the designator here, are black men and black women and the lowest risk among Asian men and women. And the 10-year age conditional risk, meaning at any point in time your risk over the next 10 years 
of an HIV diagnosis among SM MSM was lowest for the age group above 50 and highest for the age group uh, 20 or below. All right, this is not advancing slides either. Okay, so looking at estimates by geographic region, the lifetime risk by state shows you in the dark area here that the highest probability rates of HIV diagnoses continue to be in the southwest and northeast corridor of the United States. So let's move on to PrEP in women. And looking at uh, the, one, the two studies that got the most attention this year at CROI were related to efficacy and safety of the depivirine vaginal ring for prevention. And these two studies were done very similarly, the ASPIRE study and the RING study. They both had relatively equal uh, patient populations, although the placebo group, this was a two-to-one randomization in the RING study versus a one-to-one -one randomization in the ASPIRE study. And patients received or were randomized to either a use of a depivirine vaginal ring, which is used like a... Uh, uh, vaginal contraceptive ring would be used versus placebo, and there was a placebo ring. So the vaginal ring with depivirine is impregnated with depivirine that is supposed to elute out into the tis tissue when it's inserted into the vagina. And the HIV infection rates are summarized here with the infections compared to placebo in both of these groups. The HIV incidence per 100 person years was a little bit lower in the depivirine ring compared to placebo in both groups, but the overall protective efficacy of the depivirine ring compared to placebo was somewhat disappointing. Although statistically significantly different, the protection efficacy was only 27% in the ASPIRE study and 31% in the ring study. And when they investigators attempted to look at individual subgroups to assess whether there were subgroups that had more benefit. The major group that had a little bit better efficacy were women over the age of 21. And in that study, 37% efficacy for the ring study and 56% efficacy for the ASPIRE study. However, I would caution that even though this was statistically significant, the investigators did exclude the two sites that had the worst adherence to the use of the depivirine ring, which I don't think is really statistically appropriate to do. So I would, that number should be interpreted with caution. And the two factors that seemed to be associated with low efficacy were the fact that adherence clearly did have an effect and an impact on the, on the protective efficacy of the vaginal ring. And part of the reason for a lower rate of adherence was the fact that the ring was stiffer than what you might see with a diaphragm, so it was a little bit harder for women to use in terms of self-insertion. And also the tissue levels in women who were randomized to the depivirine ring were lower than expected. So it looked like the depivirine was not eluding into the tissue in high enough concentrations to achieve high efficacy. So I think there's still work to be done with that study. Um, because of our little problem with advancing, I skipped over this slide, but let me just uh, go back to the treatment cascade for a moment. And there was another interesting study that was presented referring to that 
far end of the treatment cascade of individuals who actually got into care, got tested, found out their diagnosis, got started on antiretroviral therapy, and then were virologically suppressed. And so the Medical Monitoring Project is another CDC-sponsored uh, study that evaluates trends in using nationally represented information about persons receiving HIV care in the U.S. And they have a database of 23 th more than 23,000 persons for whom medical record extraction and some personal interviews were conducted. And they looked at the proportion of individuals who were fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy to this level at their most recent test. And compared to previous measurements by this group, there was an increase from 72 to 80 percent virologic suppression at the most recent test. The largest increases incurred, occurred in the 18 to 29-year age group, and although trends increased for all age and racial and ethnic groups, and the proportion who were suppressed at all tests in the preceding 12 months also increased from 58 to 68 percent. So again, demonstrating progress in achieving viral suppression for those individuals who do get into care and are retained in care and started on antiretroviral therapy. So moving on to end-organ complications of antiretroviral therapy, I'm going to go over several studies that attempted to look at both interventions and data epidemiologically about how we're doing with end-organ complications. The first study is a more global uh, study attempting to utilize a commonly available intervention with an anti-inflammatory agent aimed at reducing immune activation. And the agent used in this ACTG study was aspirin. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial for individuals who had HIV infection and were fully suppressed for at least a year on effective antiretroviral therapy. They were randomized to either a higher dose of aspirin at 300 milligrams daily, a lower dose like a baby aspirin dose of 100 milligrams daily or placebo. The primary endpoint was a change in soluble CD14, a marker of lymphocyte activation at week 12. But they also looked at cyclooxygenase levels, which are actually measuring the physiologic effect of the aspirin itself endothelial function by FMD and other biomarkers of immune activation using D-dimer and other soluble markers, in particular uh, soluble CD163, which is a monocyte activation marker. And the bottom line from this study, as you can't read any of the writing here, but you can see the lines on the graph, they're pretty much parallel and pretty much flat showing that aspirin had no effect on the major soluble markers of immune activation that were the target endpoints or any other biomarkers associated with inflammation. And this was despite the fact that there were significant reductions in cyclooxygenase levels. So aspirin was having the physiologic effect that was expected, but it had no impact on markers of immune activation. So aspirin is not the answer for decreasing immune activation in people who are fully suppressed on ART. Looking at cardiovascular disease risk as the next end organ, this was a substudy of the START trial. Most of you will recall from last summer's uh, New England Journal 
presentation of the START study. It was a prospective randomized multinational trial looking at early initiation of antiretroviral therapy for people with CD4 counts above 500 versus deferred ART for people who waited until their CD4 count declined to less than or equal to 350. This was a sub-study of the START trial looking at 332 individuals who had end organ measurements of cardiovascular risk measured by small and large artery elasticity using radial artery diastolic pulse wave forms. They were evaluated at baseline at month 4, 8, 12, and then annually thereafter. Prior studies in the general population have shown that this surrogate marker is a predictor of cardiovascular disease risk in a number of different manners and cardiovascular disease progression. And if you look at prior studies in HIV-infected individuals, small artery elasticity and large artery elasticity are decreased compared to values measured in the general population. So in this study, after a median follow-up of about 40 months, and you can see there was a, a distinct disparity in the amount of time on ART as was planned by the trial itself, early ART did not improve vascular elasticity in this study. This is small artery elasticity, and although you can see some divergence, here, this being the deferred therapy arm on the lower bars and in red, the immediate therapy arms. There were modest differences, but these were not statistically significant, nor did they change much over time as measured out to 36 months in this sub-study, suggesting that at least with regard to this surrogate marker of cardiovascular disease risk and progression, early antiretroviral therapy did not have an impact in this sub-study. On the other hand, looking at another study evaluating stroke and TIA risk and incidence in HIV-infected individuals on antiretroviral therapy, the ALERT cohort was evaluated in a large study by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network. And just by way of background, stroke rates in HIV infection, depending on which population and publication you look at, ranges anywhere from 17 to 80 percent higher than in the general population of age-matched controls. And in this prospective observational cohort study, which evaluated antiretroviral treatment-naive individuals with no history of stroke or TIA who were randomized on their initial ART regimen and then followed over time from June of 1998 through June of 2011, of enrollment and then out to 2015 as the endpoint. In almost uh, 7,000 patients, a pretty diverse population in terms of background, racial, and ethnicity, uh, fair uh, representation of women here, and a CD4 count around 240 when they started antiretroviral therapy. There were 54 stroke or TIA events over about 32,000 patient years of follow-up. And as you can see here from the bar graphs, the stroke and TIA incidence in persons who were started on antiretroviral therapy in randomized trials, overall here on this side of the slide, on the left-hand side as you're looking at it, um, the overall value is here for men and here, or here for the overall group and somewhat lower for men than overall, and the highest rates of stroke and TIA were among women with HIV infection, 
on antiretroviral therapy. And looking at individual racial and ethnic groups, here's the value for all the overall study itself, which was roughly comparable to that for Caucasian patients in the study, while the African-American and uh, population here had a much higher rate of almost three, hazard ratio of three here, compared to Hispanic, which was the lowest rate. And when you broke this down by adjusted relative risk and multivariate analyses, interestingly, aside from the traditional risk factors for stroke, which included hypertension, advancing age, diabetes, and other stroke risk factors, in fact, the highest adjusted relative risk for stroke and TIA was highest among those who were not suppressed on antiretroviral therapy when you controlled for other traditional risks and for being uh, female or black or African-American. So not being on antiretroviral therapy and not being suppressed on ART is a risk factor for stroke and TIA in this study. The next organ system I want to look at is bone disease. There were several, uh, I think, very interesting presentations on bone disease at CROI this year. The first I'm going to highlight was a study from Eurocida, which looked at specific antiretroviral therapy use and the risk of fractures, of osteoporotic fractures, and the risk of osteonecrosis. Now, traditionally, we think of osteoporosis and osteonecrosis in HIV as two distinct um, bone categories of disease. And it, as it turns out in this study, that was also the case. And independent findings were associated with osteonecrosis as opposed to osteoporosis. But first, looking at osteoporotic overall risk factors and osteoporotic risk factors, the uh, Eurocita cohort demonstrated after evaluating a number of risk factors, including demographics, other underlying HIV comorbidities, other risk factors for bone disease, the only thing that emerged from that analysis was tenofovir exposure as a factor that influenced osteoporotic fracture risk and any fracture risk. So you look at ever used versus never used, there was about a 40% increase in the relative risk of any fracture when patients were on tenofovir, and about a 10% increased risk associated with osteoporotic fractures. And this was similar, uh, although not quite as high a risk in terms of any fracture, but still about a 10 to 12% increased risk if you were on tenofovir at the time of the fracture versus not on tenofovir. Interestingly, the cumulative effect of tenofovir did not fall out as a statistically significant risk for osteoporotic fractures. When looking at osteonecrosis as a separate entity based on evaluation of femoral neck osteonecrosis, there were a number of antiretroviral drugs that were associated with significant increased risk after adjusting for other variables, such as CD4 cell count, AIDS and non-AIDS diagnoses, and other background demographic risks. However, when you adjusted for other antiretroviral therapy use and other variables that might influence osteonecrosis, none of these emerged as statistically significant association with osteonecrosis. So that 
In the influence of tenofovir demonstrated for overall fracture risk and osteoporotic fracture risk was not statistically significant in terms of risk of osteonecrosis. And I think this just further emphasizes the differences in the two pathogenic features of those types of bone disease. Um, the next study I'd like to highlight is an actual intervention that attempted to reduce the risk of bone loss in individuals who were started on antiretroviral therapy with tenofovir. And this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial conducted at Emory in HIV-infected, treatment-naive individuals who were starting antiretroviral therapy. They were randomized to receive a single dose of zoledronic acid, 5 milligrams by IV infusion, compared with a placebo that was given by IV infusion on day one, and then started on atazanavir, ritonavir, tenofovir, and FTC as their background ART regimen. The endpoints in the study were safety and laboratory measures of that included C-terminal telopeptide of collagen, which is a marker of bone resorption, and bone mineral density by DEXA that was performed at day zero and at weeks 12, 24, and 48. And the interesting findings from this study demonstrated a 74% reduction in bone resorption compared with placebo at week 12, the primary endpoint, and this was sustained out to week 24, whether you looked at bone resorption uh, biomarker or at DEXA's lumbar spine and similar finding as at hip and fem femoral neck showing a decrease in or an improvement, increase in bone mineral density compared to placebo. And on this side of the graph, the red line or the top line here is the placebo arm and the blue line here at the bottom is zoledronic acid showing that a much uh, redu a significant reduction in the marker of bone resorption compared to placebo here and an increase in bone mineral density at the lumbar spine compared to placebo here, which showed a decrease in bone mineral density. So this intervention did demonstrate a significant benefit of the zoledronic acid. And another uh, study that looked at bone mineral density recovery was a substudy of IPREX. If you recall, IPREX was the first of the PrEP studies to demonstrate the utility of tenofovir and FTC compared with placebo. And in a substudy of that trial, 498 participants underwent DEXA evaluations every 24 weeks while they were on PrEP, and then uh, repeat DEXA at 24 weeks after stopping PrEP, and then another repeat at 72 weeks just before they went back on PrEP in an open-label extension phase of the trial. And the summary uh, outcome here was that recovery of bone mineral density returned to placebo levels after stopping PrEP in this study. So what you can see here are hip and spine DEXA evaluations and the different colored uh, balloons here represent pink here and placebo. Um, patients in green here who got less than 16 weeks of PrEP and in blue more than 16 weeks of PrEP. And although there were modest differences depending on age and at different uh, areas of measurement at the hip and spine, what you can see here is the trend in all categories showed a decrease with tenofovir and FTC during PrEP 
and then a return to baseline levels that were equal to placebo in all of the different groups that were evaluated, suggesting that the decrease in bone mineral density seen with tenofovir and FTC during PrEP is reversible when PrEP is stopped. So moving on now to neurocognitive dysfunction, there was a nice study also done by the ACTG that attempted to evaluate previous observations suggesting that Maraviroc, because it has better CNS penetration, may have a comparatively larger impact in reducing baseline neurocognitive impairment in individuals with HIV infection. So in this study, which was randomized, double-blind, and placebo-controlled trial in ART-naive individuals. They were randomized to receive either Maraviroc or tenofovir or placebo, plus a background regimen of darunavir, ritonavir, and FTC. The endpoints included a neuropsychological battery of 15 tests at baseline, weeks 24 and 48. These were standardized to an NPZ score, and they also looked at a global deficit score, a higher NPC score, meaning worse impairment, and participants were classified by a global deficit score as having normal neurocognitive function, mild deficits, or you know, moderate to severe deficits. And again, the conclusion from the trial showed that neurocognitive functioning improved, and here the higher the score, the worse the deficit, the neurocognitive functioning improved, decreased deficits after 48 weeks of treatment, but there were no differences between Maraviroc or tenofovir in the study. And again, those with moderate impairment had greater declines in the global deficit score than those with mild to no impairment, but overall, the study was a positive study. Antiretroviral therapy improved neurocognitive function, but no difference between tenofovir and Maraviroc, kind of discounting the potential of Maraviroc as better penetration into the CNS. So let's move on to a couple of studies related to opportunistic infections and malignancies at CROI. The first of these is an interesting study attempting to reduce the occurrence of cryptococcal meningitis. If uh, you recall in the literature, in low- and middle-income countries where there are still high rates of cryptococcal meningitis in HIV-infected individuals with advanced immunosuppression, screening for cryptococcal antigen in the serum has demonstrated a prevalence of about 7% of asymptomatic cryptococcal antigenemia. In attempting to evaluate this as a preemptive uh, platform for fluconazole therapy, individuals that looked at patients screened in 18 Ugandan clinics, including over 2,000 patients, and they had reflexive cryptococcal antigen screening, meaning that everybody who had a CD4 count sent to the lab and was found to have a CD4 count of under 100, then had the lab reflexively screen that serum for cryptococcal antigen. And again, they demonstrate a prevalence of about 7% of asymptomatic cryptococcal antigenemia. They then evaluated those 152 patients who were asymptomatic with lumbar punctures and cultures for cryptococcal disease. They did not, for those who did not have evidence of cryptococcal meningitis at that time, they went on to assign them to fluconazole for two weeks with a loading dose and then a daily dose and then started antiretroviral therapy. So preemptively using fluconazole to prevent progression to cryptococcal meningitis. 
the results of the study in terms of the 10-week and the six-month outcomes showed that about 5.3% of individuals, despite fluconazole preemptive therapy, went on to develop cryptococcal meningitis, and at six months, that had risen to 9.3%. Those who had the highest risk of progressing within six months to active cryptococcal meningitis were those who had serum cryptococcal antigen titers of greater than 1 to 160 at baseline. And the six-month risk of a hazard ratio, the hazard ratio at six months for those who had a titer of higher than 1 to 160 was about nine-fold increased and 12-fold increased if the titer was greater than 1 to 640. So despite the receipt of preemptive fluconazole therapy, there was still about a 25% risk for meningitis. And this is actually looking at mortality. Preemptive fluconazole also was associated, while it may have been associated with a somewhat lower risk of progressing to cryptococcal meningitis, there was still a significant risk of mortality in this study. And that, too, was related to the height of the cryptococcal anagenemia at baseline before preemptive fluconazole therapy was started, with the highest risk of mortality with a hazard ratio of 2.5 for those individuals who had a titer greater than 1 to 160 at the time they found, were found to have asymptomatic anagenemia. The next study I want to highlight looked at HPV vaccine in individuals who were HIV infected and older than age 20. So you might recall uh, it's recommend this vaccine is recommended for people under 26. This attempted to look at whether there was an impact in individuals older than this. Uh, this, this was a randomized trial looking at vaccine or placebo given at entry week 8 and week 24. Individuals were then followed with high-resolution anoscopy, cytology, and serology, and the primary endpoint was persistent anal HPV in those without infection at baseline. About a third of those at baseline already had high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, and two-thirds had abnormal anal cytology, so a high-risk in individual uh, population. This study was stopped by the DSMB for futility in September of 2015 because there was no statistically significant difference in hazard ratios or specific endpoints related to persistent anal HPV, meaning detection on two time points after baseline, or in high-grade SIL. And this was despite the fact that there was nearly 100% immunogenicity of the vaccine at all four serogroups that were included in the vaccine. And this suggested that these individuals may have had prior infection with anal HPV DNA types that were not detected at baseline and that vaccination of older individuals did not prevent anal HPV. The Next study I want to look at is invasive pneumococcal disease, and I'll just summarize very quickly because I'm running out of time, but the, this was a Canadian cohort study that looked at a 20-year rates of invasive pneumococcal disease. And as you can see here, the peak incidence rate per 100,000 population was over 300 back in 1995 and has declined steadily over the years to 45 per 100,000 population with most of that risk being pneumococcal pneumonia and bacteremic pneumococcal disease. 
And the only summary point I want to make here is that despite these dramatic declines in incidence with both with and without pneumococcal vaccination, the annual incidence rate is still markedly higher than in the general population, about a five-fold increased risk of invasive pneumococcal disease in HIV-infected individuals. And the last study I'm going to highlight is also from the START trial, another sub-study that, that looked at the risk of cancer in individuals when they were receiving immediate versus uh, deferred antiretroviral therapy. The primary results of the study suggested that there was a reduced risk of cancer of about 64 percent. In the sub-study, the investigators hypothesized that this reduction would be greater for those with infection-related cancers, meaning HPV, Kaposi's sarcoma, and EBV-associated lymphomas. And indeed, that's exactly what they found. And the immediate antiretroviral therapy uh, arm had six events, the deferred arm 23. This was a 75 percent reduction in infection-related cancers in the START trial graphically depicted here in red for immediate and blue for deferred. And when you looked at this compared to non-infection related cancers, there were pretty much overlapping curves here with no significant difference. So most of the decrease in cancer risk was associated with the infection related cancers. And I'm just going to finish here. I'll, I won't go through all of these in the interest of time, but just summary points are indicated here showing progress toward achieving the goals of the national HIV AIDS strategy. We're still searching for interventions to reduce inflammation. We need better measures of uh, vascular function as cardiovascular disease risk, a significant association among women and blacks for increased risk of stroke, but the highest association not being suppressed on ART. We have more work to do with PrEP in women. There is, has been progress made in reducing the effects of bone resorption and bone mineral density on ART. ART reduces HIV neurocognitive dysfunction. We're not sure yet the impact in low incidence settings of the approach to screening cryptococcal antigen and preemptive fluconazole therapy, vaccination of HIV infection individuals who are older for HPV had no impact on outcomes, and lastly, invasive pneumococcal disease has a much higher incidence rate in HIV-infected individuals despite vaccination and despite antiretroviral therapy, and early ART initiation at high CD4 counts prevents infection-related cancers to a greater degree than non-infectious-related cancers. So thank you. Thank you very much, Connie. That was lovely. Very nice summary. Uh, are there are questions. We have a few minutes. I don't, there's no microphones here, so I can't hear everything you're saying.
I think that's the that's the million dollar question, right, or sixty four thousand dollar question, whatever. Um, you know, at, at I think the the outcome from this study is primarily designed to show that if aspirin has any benefit in HIV infection in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease, it's not related to its anti-inflammatory effect. So it's not, the study wasn't intended to look at whether aspirin in and of itself right, right. reduces cardiovascular disease risk like it has been shown to do in a general population, um, particularly of men. So that relationship has, is still undetermined for HIV-infected individuals. And the kinds of studies that have been done in the big cardiovascular risk trials really have not been done in HIV-infected individuals. I think uh, if you were to ask a cardiologist that question, they would say, yes, you should use aspirin. And my qualification to that would be that if you decide to use aspirin, it's not going to be, if it reduces your risk, it's not going to be because it's related to reducing overall immune activation. So there may be some other effect of aspirin that has an impact on cardiovascular disease risk, but it's not specifically related to its anti-immune activation properties. Oh, thanks. Connie, there's a question of why the ART was started two weeks after that fluconazole was begun? Well, I guess that's another $64,000 question. I think if I were designing that study, I would have started the antiretroviral therapy and the fluconazole at the same time. I think they were trying to get um, blood levels of fluconazole up and trying to avoid the potential for subclinical iris, meaning that even though some of these patients did not have measurable evidence of cryptococcal meningitis when they did LPs on them, um, they may still have had subclinical uh, cryptococcal meningitis that might have emerged at the time antiretroviral therapy was started. So I think the reasoning for starting fluconazole first was to avoid sort of unmasking subclinical cryptococcal meningitis, even though they couldn't detect it by doing lumbar punctures at baseline. This is a very relevant question to the coming Olympics. Is there any effect of Zeta virus on HIV or HIV <laughs> on the Zeta virus infection? Okay, now that was not covered at Croy <laughs> at all, but, <laughs> but uh, those of us who are infectious disease specialists in the room, we've all been inundated with recommendations about what to do about Zika virus. Um, what I can say is there have been virtually no data emerging from any of the epidemiologic studies that look at increased, decreased, or otherwise risk of Zika virus associated with HIV. There's a lot of work ongoing right now. There's been a large RFA that a lot of people have requests for applications for grants that a lot of people have responded to. There are some epidemiologic data that are emerging from Salvador and Bahia, which is the northern part of Brazil, which is sort of the epicenter when the Zika outbreak was first recognized in Brazil. And there doesn't, at least from personal communication from the investigators involved in that outbreak, there doesn't seem to be an undue increase in risk associated with HIV infection. But I think that's a question that remains to be determined. Um. Please clarify the risk for black males, I mean, one in 19 versus the risk in African-American women. 
Is that a? Yes, so the, the individual lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis for black men was one in 19 uh, over the cumulative risk over the lifetime. For black women, it was one in 42 as a cumulative risk over time. You can see the numbers better in your syllabus than were displayed on the slides. And both of those subcategories had higher risks than the overall risk of the population in general, and certainly much higher probability of an HIV diagnosis than comparable men and women who were Caucasian or Hispanic. Trevor? Any update in the um, incidence and the reversibility of renal dysfunction with the use of tenofovir in PrEP? So what I said was I'm not going to cover specific antiretroviral therapy studies. Um, there's a PrEP talk this afternoon, and the renal, I'm assuming that the renal dysfunction issue can be, will be addressed in that talk. So I tried to avoid overlap with all of my other colleagues. So I didn't review that specifically, although there is a modest increase in serum creatinine seen with tenofovir during PrEP that also uh, decreases when PrEP is stopped. Any other burning questions? Okay. Thank you, Connie. Very nice. Paul? 